Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We'll have last week of our Advent series. Next week we'll get back to uh, the book of Acts. I want to think about Christmas one last time and then you can forget about it till next December. Let's begin in chapter 2, verse 22. We'll really be in 33 through 35, but I want to give you a little bit of the context leading up here. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, meaning Mary and Joseph, brought him, meaning Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the land, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him, Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Let's pause here for just a second. The Holy Spirit had helped Simeon recognize Jesus' true identity. And what you see is that Simeon is thankful. He's praising God at this moment that, that what he had been told is indeed coming true, has indeed come true with his very eyes as he is beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ the child born in a manger now in his presence. Simeon was thankful that he had seen the Messiah. And most recountings of the story stop here. But Simeon doesn't stop here. Simeon goes on, verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about Jesus or him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, Father, may it pierce the cold parts of our hearts that we maybe don't even realize are there. May indeed the, the good news of the coming of your son Jesus, may it reveal parts of our hearts 
that we didn't even know were there. Father, may it pierce or crush our pride for the things we know are there and are not willing to deal with. Thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You know, you're not supposed to bring up uncomfortable things at Christmas, are you? Certainly not with family, but just in general, there's kind of like this kind of taboo, right, to, to bring up uncomfortable things at the Christmas season. It's the time for cheer and peace. Christmas is supposed to be about happiness and peacefulness. Admittedly, I had actually had planned to preach this passage for Christmas last week. And I got into study, and I'm like, <sighs> and, and honestly, if, I, if, if I'm just being totally genuine, I, 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 I try to always be genuine, if I'd be more forthcoming, there we go. Uh, if I want to reveal more to you in this moment, there we go, that's a better way to say it. Uh, I, my first hesitation was, do I want to preach that passage on Christmas? That was my first hesitation. Now, now that's the beauty of us preaching verse by verse through the Bible, because we don't usually get the flexibility to change when we're going to preach on different uh, passages. So, uh, obviously I did not want that to be the, uh, only reason or the driving reason for why I decided to switch, but nevertheless, I wanted to tell you that it was there. Like, there's this uncomfortableness that I had of preaching a sermon like this on Christmas Day. Um, the debate's still out on whether or not it was the right decision or not. I guess we'll see a little more clearly after today. You're supposed to be just happy at Christmas. Supposed to pretend like everything is okay. Midwesterners are particularly, I don't, not all of you are native Midwesterners, but Midwesterners are particularly good at just kind of pretending like everything's okay. Um, not, not the, whole, the entire United States is not like that. There's parts of the United States that if something's not okay, they're just going to tell you. Like, it's not okay. Uh, I'm not saying that something's right or wrong or whatever, I'm just making an observation. For the most part, at Christmas time, everything's supposed to be okay. I wonder if you spent time in confession with your family, like I encouraged you to last week. It, if you did, that, I'm not saying that, that you had to, but if you did, I'm sure that that was very uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for me. It was uncomfortable in my family. It's sitting around the, din- the breakfast table, having to tell my kids, I'm sorry for this, like this specific thing. I'm sorry for that. I've done this towards you. Will you forgive me? And I can do this, children, because of what we're about to go open gifts for. And w- so we did. It was chaotic. It was very uncomfortable, and yet it was wonderful. At the end of the time, whether my kids understood or grasped even an ounce of it, whatever, I, I don't know. That's that is, in many ways, uh, uh, to, to much of an extent, very much up to the spirit of how much my children would grasp in that moment. But what I do know this is that at the end, my soul and the Lord were good. There was peacefulness at the end of that chaotic moment, that turmoil or tumultuous situation. There was peacefulness at the end of it. 
Here's what we need to understand. Like the idea that Jesus would come and anything but peace would happen is just as much a part of Christmas as all the joy and good news. We tend to think of Christmas, again, as just being a story about peace and good news. Joy and good news. But there's more to the story than that. This idea that anything but peace would come just feels, at least to me, I mean, unless I'm alone, it just feels uncomfortable. Like, this is what Christmas is about. I mean, it's not what, when we think about Christmas and then looking forward to the new year, we think about joy and peace and how I want that, and that's what's supposed to happen because I'm a Christian. And, and then now comes 2018, and so here comes joy and peacefulness because I've got a new grasp on it. And that's what it's supposed to look like. This year, you want peace, you want tranquility, you want understanding, you want restfulness. I'm not saying these are bad desires. I'm saying, though, that our perspective is that that's what Christmas is about only, and so therefore as I start the new year, that's what I'm expecting. And here's what we need to understand. Christmas delightfully, delightfully means that peace has come. That the light has come into our dark place. It very much means that. But Christmas also means this. That there is a war necessary to take place in order to get to that peace. Christmas means that too. You ever heard of the phrase, you got to make a mess to clean up a mess? Have you heard of, I mean, we've all heard that phrase, right? You can say yes, or you can nod your head yes, right? It's not exactly like that. But you got to think in that term, in, that, in those terms. Christmas includes a mess that has to be made before true peace can be had. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What, what's Jesus talking about? He ta- he's, he's talking about my incarnation. Right, see, I have come to the earth. So the incarnation has happened not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Now, now we know Jesus is not saying like at this moment in Matthew that no peace is coming. No, Jesus is peace. And that peace will happen. But he comes with a sword. A sword that is very much a part of Christmas as joy to the world is. As hark the herald angels sing, someone should write a song about a sword coming at Christmas. Because it's just as much a part of Christmas as those others. Let me ask you this question. Have you experienced the hurt of this reality yet? Or have you identified it as such? The reality that the incarnation brings both a peace and a sword. Have you stood, let me me maybe uh, uh, explain what I mean by this question a little further. Have you stood for the truth against another 
And instead of peace happening, like it's supposed to be peaceful, right? You say the truth and peace is supposed to happen. And instead of peace happening, a sword has been lifted in arms as if the peace you said was a sword to their soul. And so they respond in combat. It's in this passage, let me be clear, this passage does not mean that Jesus is advocating violence. What it means is that the gospel brings conflict. The gospel brings conflict. The gospel, think of it this way, the, the gospel is heat. Whenever you apply heat to anything, something happens. Either good things or bad things happen. When you apply the right amount of heat to uh, eggs, right, they cook and they become edible. You apply too much heat and they become terrible. See, the gospel brings conflict. I want to talk about the gospel bringing conflict. Think about Christmas bringing conflict in two ways. The first one is this. The gospel or Christmas, if you will, causes conflict among people. It causes conflict among people. Let's read verse 24 again. I'm sorry, 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. So this, this baby come in a manger is appointed for the fall and rising of many, and he'll be a sign that is opposed. There'll be opposition to it. It was said this way, people will be polarized and many will oppose Jesus. Rusty talked a few weeks ago about the idea of authority. That Christmas brings conflict because Christ demands His exclusive right of authority over the entire world. And the world does not like this. You and I struggle with this. So certainly there's opposition to Christ because He demands exclusive right to reign and rule. But there is more than just the authority issue going on. And John 3, verse 19 through 20 says this, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, Jesus has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be what? Exposed. Revealed. And what did it just say in Luke? That he has come, like we didn't read this, this is verse 35, but has come that hearts would be revealed, that darkness would be exposed. Same thing said similarly here in John. Listen, what he's saying is people love darkness. You and I still struggle with loving darkness. And we hate the light. The world hates the light without exception because it exposes them for what they are. Enemies of God, self-justifiers, self-righteous, prideful, all these things. And listen, the more 
you shine light. And the more God uses you to shine light into someone's darkness, oftentimes the more you begin to be hated. That's why Simeon is saying here, this conflict, this conflict, so this conflict that's going to be caused by the coming of Jesus and the good news of the gospel, this conflict that will come will expose the hearts of men and women. So you have during the early church, Christianity quickly came into conflict with the culture. I mean, I don't need to at least know a general idea of of how this might have looked, uh, whether you've read any history or not, but uh, of the early church. Listen, they had their right. The, the culture had they had their own gods. They worshipped. I mean, it, it was commonplace to offer respect to other people's gods when you were in the city. So, like, the city would have the gods of kind of their choosing, and so even if you visited that city, you should still offer respect to those gods, and sometimes the emperor himself, and never mind the fact that they just simply even had gods other than the god of the world, but they had their own gods and worship, and if you refused to worship them, at best, you were thought less of, and at worst, you were tortured and killed. But not only that, but there's also practical... Uh, Issues and ways in which the Christians came in conflict with the culture, right? People made money from the worship of their gods often. Sex gods and fertility and crops and success. And so you could sell certain things to make money off of other people and the worship of these other gods and the so on and so forth. So people made money from the immorality that was sold. But then what happens is along come Christians who say, not only are these things wrong, that our God says that these things are wrong, but He's also the only God. All others are fake. Our God indeed is in control of these things, like fertility or the success of crops. We worship the only true God, and your gods are fake and worthless. And we will not participate in the immorality of your culture. So what happens is they, 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 they were in conflict with the culture. And this is not anything new to us, but what we see here is they're in the heat of conflict. That's what I want you to see. Now, if we bring this home and think about today, I, 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 I've got to think broadly here. I want us to think about it in this way. We in our culture, are in conflict, and in, in our today, are in conflict with our culture. Indeed, I, I think oftentimes we're not in conflict enough in the sense that we tend to value a lot of the same things. But, but leave that aside for a second. I, what you see, we, we are indeed in conflict. Those who are living the gospel, those who are understanding the gospel and applying it well, are in conflict with the culture. But I also want to point out to this that we're in conflict with two aspects of the culture. Again, I, I'm just trying to give us practical application of this. What's it look like for Christianity, for the gospel, to bring people into conflict with people in our culture? I think there's kind of two primary uh, groups of people, if you will, that the church, the true church is in conflict with today. 
The first one is this. The clearly secularized culture. The clearly secularized culture. So this would be the, here's how I would define that. Those who claim no part in the real gospel of Jesus Christ. So they would, they would just, just, you know, that, that's, yeah, that's church, that's fine. They might even say that's good for you. I don't want any part of that. People, these people worship things like individual expression, freedom of self, money, success, education. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. These are their functional gods of today. They're functional gods. They may not have a temple. I mean, their temple might be Walmart or the mall or the voting booth. I, I don't know. But th- th- their, their temples look different than the temples of them, but they still have temples that they go to to worship. But the other group is this. The other group that the true church is in conflict with today is those lost but claim to be within Christianity. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain this as best I can. This would be those who claim to be Christians but whose hearts are really being exposed as goats and not sheep, are fake and not real. So I think there's kind of two large, obviously, ultimately, they're in the same group, right? They're still in the lost category. But if I could pull out and say these kind of two groups that the true church is in conflict with today, you have the clearly, we don't want Jesus, we don't want that or any of that, but those, and then the other group would be those who would say, yes, Jesus is the only way. but are not truly followers of Christ. So on one front, we are at war with those who would pervert something like human sexuality or would deny the life of the unborn. Clearly, like, that, and that, that war is more clearly defined. But on the other front... The true church is at war with those or in conflict with those who would have parallel moral values to us but still deny the sufficiency of grace and the sovereign rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. Here's the problem. This group of people is really hard to define. It's really hard to to pick it out. It's really hard to know like what am I fighting against? Who, I'm in, who am I in conflict with? It's, it's really hard to name. Let me give you an example. My, my, my grandpa was a, a Southern Baptist pastor for decades. And, and many of you don't know this, but within the Southern Baptist Convention or the de- denomination of Southern Baptists, back in the 80s and the early 90s, there was a fight for the conviction or the belief or the doctrine, if you will, of the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Scriptures are infallible and without error. And you had people within the, in, within the denomination that said, no, the Bible has errors. And there are people in the convention that said, no, the Bible does not have errors. All right, so who are we in conflict with? That's really easy to tell. They believe this way, this believes this way. This is really easy to tell who we are in conflict 
with. But then, within the same denomination, so ultimately what happens is those who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture ultimately win out. Uh, praise God for that. And then what became the issue is how are we allocating resources, particularly as a convention, as it relates to missions? Where we're sending money as a denomination to this mission, or, to, or are we sending it to like local groups of uh, church leaders and stuff called associations and things like that? What are we? How are we allocating money, and are we best using this for the furthering of God's kingdom? Well, in that situation, in that fight, that conflict, if you will, who's the enemy? Like who's the? Let me, let me back off of that word. That's maybe too strong of a word. Who who are we in conflict with? Well, that, that's more blurry, right? Like, at least in my mind, that's more confusing. It's a little, little less, how do you know who, who, like, it's just not as clear. I think this is an example of this. In our lifetime, and I think for the next few decades particularly, the fight against cultural, cultural Christianity will be the conflict we will see rise. The conflict with those who claim Christ but don't love Him. And I think what you've seen, particularly over the past year, is a rise in a, cl- in like the, if you will, the, the clarity of those who claim Christ but don't love Him versus those who claim Christ and do love Him. That distinction is growing clearer. And I hope, I pray, that by God's grace, it will continue to grow clearer. But that's a conflict. And I would say that's the two main conflicts that the church is in. Again, this category, I'm saying, I'm trying to describe them as claiming to be Christians but are not. So that puts them ultimately in the category of the lost with the world. But, But there's that kind of distinction where they claim to be sheep but are not. Now, I, again, I, I, as a disclaimer here, I would say, obviously, we, we ultimately don't know people's hearts, and so that's part of what makes this challenging, right? Is we, we get to look at fruit and, and, and those kind of things and, and make distinctions off of those, and, but, but it's part of what makes this messy, but nevertheless, the reality is that the, the war is there, and it's not a new war. It's a war that's been going on for a long time, and you see this in Israel's history, where they come and take over a city. And they're supposed to get rid of the influence, right? Because they're at war with competing ideologies. And so we find ourselves in conflict, I think, with these two primary groups. But here's, like, I, what I, want you to do, I want you to be aware of the conflict. I want you to be aware of the confusion, but here's what I want. I want to hopefully give you some clarity amidst the confusion. There is a fundamental hostility that both groups exhibit. So both groups that the church, the true church is at odds with or in conflict with, they, both groups exhibit this fundamental reality. They will always seek self-justification. Self-justification is the common denominator. 
Not the only common denominator, but it is a primary and fundamental common denominator. Self-justification. I will explain that. Read with me, hang with me for a few moments in Romans 1, verse 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What I want you to particularly focus in on is that God, God's wrath has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. But in their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They hide the truth. They, think of it this way, they justify their actions, their unrighteousness. And they do this by suppressing the truth. By twisting the truth. By hiding the truth. By ignoring the truth. What happens is they want to be right before God and the only way to do this or whatever your God or, or however they paint their God to be, they want to be right before God and they want to and believe they can do this through self-justification. So they suppress the truth in order to feel good about their thoughts and or actions. So I justify what I want, what I do, what I say, what I think, what I feel. And we do this by suppressing the truth, by suppressing reality. And see, both those clearly secular and those who claim to be Christians want to believe they are competent to run their own lives and save themselves. Let me give you a practical example where you and I in this room, like where this might reveal something of us. This idea of believing and wanting to believe and wanting to suppress the truth that we are not sufficient without God, but wanting to believe that we are, that we are competent to run our own lives. This is not a, a new example, but if we are not committed to being discipled, committed to studying the Scriptures diligently, then we are probably dangerously close, if not thoroughly, within this camp of wanting to believe that we are competent to run our own lives and save ourselves. Just a, a very practical example. We, we need to believe. We have this, like, we want to believe that we are competent to, to do our own lives and to ultimately to reach salvation on our own. Like, you see this come up when, when you see someone rebuked and then they respond by having to tell you an example of how righteous they are. What, what's going on in that example? You have someone who, who is trying to convince themselves and convince you that they are righteous on their own, that they are good on their own. They're competent to save themselves. And what happens is anything that stands in the way of our convincing ourselves that we are competent must be destroyed or it must be dismissed. Or we must get rid of that thought or that idea. Or we, here's how we often do it. We hear someone else speak the truth to us. 
it'll reveal something about us, but we don't want to deal with it. So here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll take that person and we'll, we'll think about all the other things that that person does that's not right. Because there's going to be a big list. You're going to be able to find those things every time. And then we'll use that to go, well, what they said there is just garbage because, you know, this over thing over here, even though it has nothing to do with what they have said. What, what's going on there? It's just self-justification. It's us trying to convince ourselves. It's the world trying to convince itself that's sufficient. And what we see at Christmas, part of the, why this brings conflict into the world is that nothing is an assault on self-sufficiency like Jesus himself. Jesus himself goes on to say, you can do nothing apart from me. This isn't something that you and I, and it's certainly not something that our world wants to hear. Because in our pride, we want to believe. The world is striving to believe that we are competent. We don't want to be told that we are full of pride and that the reason we are a mess is because we think we are good enough on our own when we know deep down that we're not. I mean, no, think about this. No wonder they got mad at Jesus. we got to convince ourselves that we're good on our own. And here comes Christ, and he's saying, guess what? You're not. The very fact that I had to come is an indictment on your lack of self-sufficiency. Listen, the heat, and listen, this, the more you identify with Christ, the more the world will get mad at you, too the more the conflict rises. I'm not, as a side note, I'm not encouraging you to go out and pick fights. It's not what we're talking about, not going and stir up violence. I'm talking about, I'm talking about being held by conviction. And that's going to come in conflict with the world. And what I'm also saying is just like Jesus, who is in conflict with the clear, secularized world was also in conflict with those who claimed the lordship of God but denied his salvation to his face. Listen, the heat of the gospel causes conflict. And, and let, me, let, me, let, me, let me encourage you. I, I know some of you are like, all right, so like, uh, like, you can, you can apply, like, the gospel in the heat of conflict in a couple different ways. Like, you can be tender and patient and kind, but then other times, like, you're going to be, you're gonna be uh, uh, maybe more, like, straightforward. You know, Jesus, at times, you see him very tender with certain people. He's applying the heat of the gospel, showing them grace through tenderness and mercy. And then you see times where he is showing people like the Pharisees grace by being straightforward and even arguably brash. You brood of vipers. What happens sometimes for, for us in our reality and even in Christ, you see people respond to grace. If they're in pride, they reject it. So it's sometimes it's not a matter of like we just have to figure out the right way to 
speak the gospel, sometimes, sometimes they're going to respond in pride either way. If the person is prideful, it will be exposed either way because that's what grace does, right? That's what light does. That's what grace does. It exposes darkness, and pride comes out. See, those in conflict with the gospel will always seek self-justification, always. Now, again, I've been largely thinking about over this course how, how you know, again, Jesus will come. He will cause the rise and fall of many in Israel. He'll expose their hearts. And so we're thinking about the gospel and God's gospel people in conflict with the world. But we can also see glimpses. And what I'm wanting you to grab a hold of is that there's, there's glimpses of where we sometimes act like the world. Where we want to self-justify. Now my, my last thought underneath this point here is that when the gospel takes over your life, it will make us both peacemakers, but it will also stir up conflict. So when we think about Christmas, Christmas brings both peace and conflict. Jesus, the incarnation, brings both peace and conflict. If you are about Christ, you will know the sweetness of peace. And you will know the heartache of brokenness and opposition. If you are about Christ, you will taste both. On one hand, I can think of many times uh, where to stand in, in my short lifetime, where to stand in opposition in the name of Christ to someone's sin has caused great a great deal of bitter conflict. The pain of this conflict. On the other hand, in my own life, I've also felt and tasted the sweetness of peace between brothers and sisters that is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I was reflecting on this, I could think of one particular relationship. One particular relationship, not one of my own, but of two other people, where someone was discipling another person, pressing hard into that person's life. Lots of heat. Many very, 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 very uncomfortable conversations. Lots of crying, lots of anger, lots of discouragement, etc. And now, I mean, I would say that, that lasts, if I remember, probably a couple years. And then, like, took a year or two of probably some healing, like some resting. And then now, these two are developing one of the best friendships imaginable. What's what's going on? There's a sweetness to the peace in that relationship. But you see, there was conflict. There was a war. 
And it wasn't just a war over preferences or a, or a war over I don't like this and you don't like that. It wasn't st- stupid stuff. It was a war over the gospel and how the gospel should take fruit in someone's life. That's why I used the word discipled. Being discipled, applying heat, the heat of the gospel. The gospel is bringing conflict. And now, having gone through the heat of the conflict, there's peace. You see, the gospel brings peace, but it also brings conflict. And we need to be prepared mentally in our soul as well. Deep within our hearts, be prepared and ready and understanding that it not only might be this way, but it has to be this way. Jesus didn't say, I came to bring peace and sometimes there will be conflict. No, I bring peace. I bring a sword. That Simeon says his coming will be the cause of a rise and fall of many. There will be conflict. And we to understand both with the world and, and, and we will be, listen, we, whether that's with people who are clearly in the world, want nothing to do with Jesus, or those who claim Christ but don't love Him, but it's also sometimes at war with the worldliness still inside those who love and adore Christ. I will say this particular relationship ex- relational example that I'm thinking of is one of the single-handedly most encouraging things I have seen in my walk with the Lord. To believe, to see, to have a tangible example of pressing through conflict and the sweetness of peace that's on the other side. The second way in which the gospel brings conflict is this. The gospel causes conflict within people, both among people and within people. So not only is there conflict among, but within. Look at verse 35. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So he's saying, Mary, Joseph, a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Listen, Mary, follow me, was for certain an admirable person. Her faith, in many instances, is to be adored, is to be modeled, is to be imitated. But Mary, too, was not without Tension. Look at Mark chapter 3, in verse, 30, verse 21. And when his family heard it, meaning when Jesus' family heard it, and this would be Mary and his siblings, they went out to seize him, for they, this is Jesus' family, were saying, Jesus is out of his mind. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was preaching. Jesus was preaching the gospel. He was proclaiming the kingdom. And there was... They were going to seize him. What do they mean? They were going to stop him from what he was doing. They were going to make him stop preaching. They were going to tell him to be quiet. 
Don't do it. Why? Because they thought he was out of his mind. This is the famous passage where they say, well, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at his disciples, Jesus says in this passage, this is my family. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Listen, as awesome as Mary was, we see here that she too was filled with tension. She tried to stand in the way of Christ's ministry and authority. Like that comes out of something within inside her. Listen, I bet you, we're speculating here, but I would imagine that Jesus' rebuke of Mary at this moment had to have run deep. Don't, don't miss that when you read. Jesus is not, oh, you know, well, those who do my, uh, the will of my Father, those are my brothers and sisters. Listen, this is in response to Mary standing in the way of Christ's ministry. It's like Jesus saying, Mom, whoever does God's will, that's my brother and sister and mother. Now listen, Jesus is not rejecting his mother at this point, right? Because you see many examples, but particularly I think of the cross, when Jesus, as he's dying, makes provisions for his mother. He's not, he's not separating himself from her and saying, I don't want anything to do with you. What he's, what he's doing is he's rebuking her for standing in the way. He's rebuking her for the, the tension that's inside of her. The lack of faith or the, the disobedience that was inside of her. Listen, in many ways, Mary is like a representative for those of us who love Jesus. But I, I don't mean like in a Adam sense, he's, she's a representative of us. I don't mean in a Catholic sense. I just mean like in a, thinking philosophically here with me for a moment, like she is a representative in many ways for those who love Jesus. She is, a, she is an example, not of like necessarily what we should do, but she's an example of what happens inside the life of a believer Someone who really, genuinely loves Jesus. Listen, if you love Jesus and follow Him, here's what Simeon is saying to you. So listen, if this is you, you love Jesus, you follow Him. Here's what Simeon is saying. This is what this passage is saying. A sword will pass through your heart as well. What's it mean? That you will have, I will have, inner conflict. We will have confusion We'll have great pain. We'll even get things wrong. We may give rebuke poorly. We may receive rebuke poorly. You will fight with God. You will wrestle with Him. You will argue with Him. You will argue with His representatives. You'll fight with yourself. quoting Keller, who was quoting J.C. Ryle, says this, J.C. Ryle says this, the child of God has two great marks about him. He may be known by his inward warfare, 
as well as by his inward peace. What's Rahel saying? See that Christians, those who love and follow God, are going to be known by a, a peacefulness, a restfulness inside of them, but also by a tension, by a fight, a war that's going to go on. Listen, when you believe in the grace of Christ, many struggles are ended, but not all. Keller says this, you will struggle to prove yourself, to find identity, to find meaning in order to handle suffering. However, there's a whole new set of struggles that begin when faith begins. Keller, continuing as he's quoting Ryle, says this, There are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christian while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They are buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion, of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity is not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and His apostles preached. True Christianity is a fight. Because there's a tension in there. If there's not a tension in there, and not a tension in there often, then you're probably not redeemed. There's a fight. Faith in Christ comes with conflict. Within us, a war. Faith comes with conflict. Let me give you two examples. First one is this. God's peace comes after the inner conflict of repentance. God's peace comes after the inner conflict of repentance. Listen, that's the whole point of Luke when he's saying that the hearts will be exposed. What's being exposed? Their need for Christ. That's what's being exposed. Listen, repentance is the result of a heart that knows it needs Jesus. On Tuesday, uh, Chapman was out playing in the yard in the snow. and You can call us bad parents, that's fine. Uh, a couple years ago, we bought them him tools and Hayden tools from Harbor Freight. Uh, amongst which there's a crowbar. Uh, Chapman was out chipping away at ice with a crowbar. 
And this was like, I don't know, this is a couple days before Tuesday. Well, now he's on Tuesday and he's not doing the same thing, except if you know this, uh, Tuesday is much colder just in general. I'm sorry, this was, yeah, Tuesday was the day after Christmas. Um, what you need to know is that the ice was much harder on Tuesday than it was the previous day when he was chipping away at ice. Uh, I guess that's fun. Uh, now, for the record, I did blunt the edges on this crowbar. Uh, and he takes the crowbar uh, and a patch of ice and standing, this is the way he tells the story because I wasn't there, he throws the crowbar down, like trying to break the ice as hard as he can, and the crowbar bounces back up and whacks him right above the eye. I, I gotta tell you this funny story. We're, we're at the uh, urgent care getting stitches, okay? It, it was deep. We were like texting uh, a doctor that we know and asking this doctor, what should we uh, do? Do we need to get stitches? Should we not? And, you know, this uh, doctor was very gracious to, to help us. Yes, I think you should go get stitches. So we, anyways, he's getting stitches, and he will not tell the doctor the story. This is a side note. Sorry, I just had nothing to do with my sermon. This part doesn't. He will not tell the doctor the story. So he says, the doctor says, okay, go ahead and tell, him to, go ahead and tell me the story. And I'm like, he whacked himself in the head with a crowbar, right? Like, I'm sitting there feeling like a terrible parent, right? Or like, oh, they're going to think I beat my kid with a crowbar or something. So I, I, I try, you know, like all these things are running through my head. And so I tell her the story of what happens. And, and then Chapman, of all things, chimes in. It wasn't the big crowbar. It was just the little crowbar. And I'm like, of, as chipper as could be. So, okay. I'm a terrible parent. There you go. I give my kids crowbars to go play with, seven-year-olds, uh, whatever. Here's what had to happen. Here's my point. Here's what had to happen. They had to clean out the wound. Like the wound, the, the most uncomfortable part of the process for him was her taking this syringe full of water with a little cup on the end and putting it on, I mean, I'm telling you, it's, it was right here. I have the crowbar, and the crowbar still has eyebrow hairs on it. Yeah, I know that was TMI for some of you, but it's, it's, yeah, it does. And uh, we looked at it the other day. It's pretty awesome. There, anyway, I'll stop. She's got the cup right there, and she's like, this is going to hurt worse than the, the and, and they just did a topical thing. Anyways, anyway, I'm getting, ha- and she's like, and I'm watching this, and I'm like, I'm going to faint, right? Like, and, and, and like, it's, and, and then she doesn't just do that once. She does that like eight times. And like pulling the wound apart and stretching it and pulling. I, I know I'm great, but this is really honestly for a point. Uh, and just squirting water hard inside there. Why? Because she's about to close up the wound. It's about to heal over. And all of the disease, the bacteria, the, the dirt, the, anything that's inside there has got to come out. It's got to be cleaned. It's got to be rooted out at the deepest part of his skin. Repentance is like this cleaner. Repentance is like this cleaner. It stings. It hurts. But it heals. Repentance heals. But it also stings and hurts. And it stings and hurts 
first. Listen, the more specific your repentance is, the deeper the cleaning. That's how, re- this is how, that's how repentance works. It creates, repentance creates terrible inner turmoil because you have to admit that y- things that you don't want to admit. And listen, if in your apologies there's not a, a sense, uh, in your walk of repentance, there's not an inner turmoil, then it's probably not real repentance. Now I would caution you, don't mistake the turmoil of getting caught with the turmoil of undermining your pride. See, because that's what's being happened here that's what's happening in Luke. That's the, the point is that the hearts would be exposed. What the, the pridefulness of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness, self-justice, that that would be undermined, that it would be, the legs would be cut out from underneath of it, that it would have no place to stand in your heart and mine. Listen, in repentance, true repentance, you have to acknowledge weaknesses that you don't want to acknowledge. And this is the only way to the peace of forgiveness. Why? Because your pride has to be undermined. Your self-righteousness has to have its legs cut out from underneath of us. And this is fundamentally what repentance does. This is why we say, particularly as your pastors, over and over again from the Scriptures, that if you're not walking in daily repentance, then you're not walking with the Lord. Because walking with the Lord requires humility and only repentance undermines your pride and leads you to dependence on Him. We cannot experience the peace of Christmas this year until we are regularly walking through the pain of repentance. And just so we're clear, as we grow in our walk with the Lord, we should become ever more aware of our sinfulness and need for repentance. Just our repentance begins to take a different shape, meaning it's, it's for different things than it was maybe five years ago. Second thing I want you to see is that God's peace comes... So first, it comes after the inner conflict of repentance. And second of all, God's peace comes after the inner conflict entailed by submission. The inner conflict entailed by submission. Go read, if you have time this week, Romans 6 through 8. And you'll see this idea, this inner warfare between a Christian's old self and a Christian's new self. The flesh and the the new the old continues, the old within us, the, the flesh within us wants to be our own master. But the new self knows the peace of letting God be God, of letting God be the master. And these two wills for the Christian are constantly in conflict. I was encouraged by what Keller said. He said, as we, as we say these words, not my will, but thine be done, we go deeper into that peace. And so the idea of as our as we submit, as this 
inner conflict as we work through the submission to the Lord. Not my will, Father, but yours. I would encourage you to flesh that out this week. I'm not going to have house gatherings, but flesh that. Where, where, where in your life does, in your thought life, your emotional life, your, your actions, where, does, where, is, where is it about your will and not God's? Where are you not in walking in repentance, but instead suppression of the truth? These conflicts are worth it. Because there's peace on the other side. And so just like that, Christ has come. We celebrate Christmas. A sword has come though too. It will bring peace but peace only comes after the war is done. Yes, there are aspects in which we experience peacefulness now. But it's nothing like the peacefulness that we'll have when all the conflict is done. We should not be surprised by conflict. Both the conflict from within and the conflict from without. Let me ask you this question as we come the end here. What does your inner turmoil look like? What does it look like? We all have inner turmoil. I mean, that's the way it is. We're at enmity with God and we will have conflict. But let me ask you this. Is it a wrestle with your wants? Or is it, or is it a wrestle with the Lord? Because here's, here's my fear. Like, oftentimes, our fighting looks like this. Our inner turmoil looks like this. I'm mad. I'm upset. Then we either go get what we want, and so that satisfies us, or we suppress the thoughts and feelings so that we can move on. That's not the fight. That's not what it looks like to, to, for the heart to be exposed by the sword, and then respond in faith. That's not the, the turmoil I'm talking about here. The, the turmoil that I'm talking about here that, that Jesus has come to provoke is a turmoil that recognizes I'm struggling with this, I want this, or I, I'm mad about that. And, and then I know my, my tendency is to, I want to go suppress the truth, or I want to go just satisfy my cravings for whatever it is. That's wrong. That's me thinking I am competent to save my life. What I need is Jesus. Listen, the fight of faith is not maintaining face. The fight of faith is confession, repentance, and faith. Taking your thoughts taking your inner turmoil to the cross and asking God for faith and forgiveness and then walking in repentance. That's what Ryle was talking about, this war inside of us, this fight inside of us. The Scriptures also tell us it's a fight that we must persevere in. How do we persevere in this Here's how. We look to our Savior. We look to Jesus who persevered through the conflict.
listen. Keller said this. Jesus was pierced, uh, uh, paraphrasing him, Jesus was pierced by a sword greater than we will ever face. He points out, we were exiled from God's presence and kept out of the garden with a flaming sword. You realize that the flaming sword at the entrance to the garden is another way to say that the wages of sin is death. Because what happens at the edge of a sword? Death. And because you have sinned against me, here's the sword from the entrance to the garden. Listen, the Old Testament shows us this, the whole thing. Every time sin was committed, someone or something had to die. And when Jesus went to the cross, he was paying the penalty for sin. What was he doing? Metaphorically speaking, he was going under the sword. Isaiah 53, 8 says this, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living stricken for the transgression of my people... Listen, he was saying Jesus went under the sword for us. Listen, self-pity will not help us. Well, I guess I'm just the way I am. A terrible mess, a terrible sinner. I guess life's just going to be hard. That's just how it is. Listen, the sword that passed through Jesus, the battle that he fought for us was infinitely greater than anything he asks us to endure. When he faced his final moment and the sword was descending upon him, listen to me, he was utterly alone and forsaken even by his us he went through the conflict in the worst way imaginable having his father turn his face away from him under his father's sword but we are never alone even in the midst of our struggles and sin. He always walks with us. Always. Whatever the sword feels like, our Father never turns His face away. Why? Because Jesus took that for us. Simeon said, there will be a sword through your soul. So listen, church, don't shrink back. That sword that would send you to eternal, eternal destruction was taken for you. This sword 
this conflict leads to rest. This sword, this conflict that you're in leads to deeper and lasting peace. This is conflict that most certainly leads to peace. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for taking the sword that that meant eternal destruction, that sword that was due to your people and thrusting that sword upon your own son. For your glory and for our eternal good. Father, may we run to the cross May we run through conflict. May we run through inner turmoil with ourselves. May we run through conflict with the world. May we not shy away from it. May we not suppress the truth. May we deal with the conflict. May we run through it in repentance and faith, knowing that the sword that could cost us eternal destruction was taken upon Jesus, and that on the other side of this conflict is greater, deeper peace. May we believe and know that Christmas means Jesus brings both joy and peace and restfulness, but also conflict but he made a provision for his brothers and sisters. Father, you made a provision for your children that we would never experience the sword of your wrath and the sword of forsaken. that we would be called forever your children and inherit your kingdom. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name.